Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Deadliest day, India's death toll surpasses 200,000 lives as COVID cases surge. Courts clash, AstraZeneca faces EU legal action over vaccines. And A for Alphabet, earnings impress as Google's parent company reports great results. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. We are midway through the week. Coming up on this busy Wednesday, U.S. President Biden details plans for his American aid boost. Fed Chair Jay Powell on the outlook for economic and market stimulus juice. Plus, Google and Microsoft rule the big tech roost, both reporting massive revenue gains. The biggest sales surge for Microsoft, in fact, in three years, driven in part by PC Power. Microsoft President Bad Smith will join us later this hour for all the details. Now, the combination of all this leaving futures a touch softer pre-market. Jay Powell's tone today, of course, going to be key. The Fed can't ignore the strength of the economic recovery. Some would say booming with inflationary pressures spreading. Jay Powell's been able to balance some of that optimism with cautiousness about the outlook so far today, I think going to be his biggest test yet. Bond yields are already on the move across the United States and in Europe. U.S. 10-year yields are at two-week highs. Italian yields are at seven-month highs on hopes for President Draghi's new $315 billion recovery plan. So the pressure is on as far as bond yields is concerned. European stocks on the rise, too, as positive earnings there drive sentiment. Deutsche Bank reporting its strongest quarter in seven years, a Q1 profit of $1.1 billion coming there. Its shares rallying, as you can see, more than 10% in Frankfurt trading as we speak. Elsewhere, strong Japanese retail sales for March helped sentiment in that region, while the Asian Development Bank also upped its growth outlook for developing Asia too. A positive growth scenario tempered, as always, by uncertainties over India's current health crisis. And that's where we're going to begin the drivers once again. India's official death toll surging past 200,000 lives on Wednesday. It's the deadliest day since the pandemic began. And now researchers producing a new model suggesting the real death toll is in fact much higher and could reach almost one million lives lost before August. 
Sam Kiley joins us now from New Delhi. Sam, I know you've just arrived. Can you give us your, your first impressions? Well, Julia, I think what the initial impression is from uh, Delhi at any rate is of a capital that has been almost entirely overwhelmed by this COVID pandemic, one uh, now in, its, uh, in the vicious grip of its second surge. And as you say, uh, there is increasing amount of data to show that it's by no means near the top of the curve in terms of infection rates, nor in terms of the death toll. Uh, catastrophically nationally short of oxygen to treat people uh, with COVID. And we've just been learned in the last hour or so that in the Maharashtra state, uh, they are not getting enough vaccines to keep their vaccination centers over. They have the capacity to vaccinate 800,000 a day and they're sending uh, some of the teams home because they're only getting at the moment some 200,000 vaccine. This uh, being a nation that is uh, traditionally produces some two thirds of the vaccine uh, vaccines produced nation uh, worldwide, uh, there has been a catastrophic failure of government at a state and national level here. That is what we are hearing on the ground from doctors, from health professionals, and occasionally even uh, from politicians, uh, with a lot of the finger pointing at the government, obviously, of Mr. Modi, who has encouraged political campaigning over the last few weeks. The mass gatherings of people packed shoulder to shoulder in stadia across many parts of the nation cannot have contributed healthily to preventing the spread of this virus, which is now identified as certainly one, one, one strain, if not two, Julia, of Indian strains that are particularly virulent. Uh, we're not sure whether or not they're causing higher levels of death, but it certainly seems to be spreading uh, extremely fast. And now even reports that wood is running out for pyres, for the burning of bodies here in New Delhi. So the scenes are catastrophic. There is a very substantial international effort now underway with the United States, United Kingdom, other donors trying to rush capacity to either produce oxygen or deliver oxygen to patients uh, to New Delhi and to elsewhere in the country because the curve, as I say, is by no means flattening. It is still accelerating and the presumption has to be that it is going to get a lot worse in this country before it gets better, Julia. Yeah, you raise such a great point, Sam. I mean, if we look at the new cases reported in the past week, and we've had various voices telling us on this show these are underestimated, 2.17 million new cases reported in the past week, and that's a 52% increase. So to your point, the curve's accelerating here, nothing less. And Again, to what you were saying there about the political rallies, I read this morning that political rallies are still going on. Sam, is the message not being clear that these kind of super spreader events must stop? It is extremely uh, bizarre, frankly, that uh, any kind of public event would be going on. There are some states that are imposing uh, much stricter lockdowns as we speak uh, preemptively because in, in some cases some of these states in this nation of 1.4 billion people have not seen the levels of surge that we've seen in Maharashtra around New mm. Delhi, Uttar Pradesh uh, that, but, and therefore there is a political imperative it is perceived. There is also an attitude particularly among the BJP party up until recently at any rate that India had somehow beaten the Covid pandemic, that it had somehow miraculously achieved herd immunity uh, and that it, as an exporter of vaccines, it was ahead of the, the world. The tragic 
reality is that it was simply behind the curve at the, of the rate of infections, which could be, some health officials are saying, many, many hundreds of percent higher than what is known. We do know, for example, in New Delhi, that a lot of the testing centers have simply shut up shop because they're being completely overwhelmed uh, with with people, anxious people testing preemptively, but also people going down with the virus. At the same time, hospitals, private hospitals reporting they're having to turn people away every day due to a lack of beds, lack of oxygen. There are even people buying oxygen uh, on the black market and parking in rows of cars and simply piping the oxygen from canisters through the windows of the cars and into people uh, splayed out in the back seats of vehicles. It is a catastrophic scene. It is absolutely extraordinary that any kind of public event should be held. Uh, but there is uh, a political imperative behind this in a number of states that have got elections coming up in May. And one court in a southern state, Julia, has even suggested in the last 48 hours that uh, uh, electoral officials could be charged with murder for allowing their elections to go ahead. I think that's slightly over the top, perhaps, but it indicates how frustrated people really are, Julia. Yeah, no illusions left there. Certainly just the stark, heartbreaking reality. Sam, thank you for bringing it to us. Sam Kiley there. All right, to Europe now, where the bitter dispute between the EU and AstraZeneca has landed in court. The drugmaker accused of failing to fulfil its contract for vaccine supplies. The company, meanwhile, says it regrets the legal move by the EU. Cyril Vanier joins us live from London. Cyril, AstraZeneca said all the way along fulfilling those supplies was their best efforts case. Where do we go from here? Absolutely, Julia. AstraZeneca says that this case is without merit and that they will defend themselves robustly in court. Well, now is their chance. When you look back at the timeline of this entire dispute between the EU and AstraZeneca, you wonder perhaps whether we shouldn't have seen this coming, this lawsuit, because the EU tried everything with AstraZeneca. They tried public shaming. They tried upbraiding them. They tried summoning the CEO. They tried helping them by the way, by actually um, uh, giving them tools to improve their uh, production facilities. None of it has worked, and the bottom line is that AstraZeneca has only provided roughly a third of the vaccine doses that it said it would provide in the first half of 2020. So Europe feels that it is out of options, that it must uh, protect its citizens. Certainly that is what uh, the EU Health Commission spokesperson has said. And that is why they are taking this matter to court. We should know, Julia, within three to six weeks what the Belgian court decides. The EU argument, of course, is that AstraZeneca is in breach of contract for failing to provide those doses and that that must be redressed. Yeah. Sir thank you so much for that. We'll watch that space. Okay, the pandemic has meant more people are at home and online, and Google's owners is seeing profits strong as a result. Alphabet reporting revenues of more than $55 billion for the first quarter of the year, up more than a third from the same period last year. Paul Monica is on the story for us. The comparables, of course, are easy because advertising spending fell off a cliff at the start of the pandemic. But, Paul, where spending goes, where eyeballs go advertising money follows. I think that's the message from these results. Oh, without question. I, I, I'm reluctant to use the term monetizing eyeballs because it makes me cringe and reminds me of the late <laughs> 90s, early 2000 and the bubble there. But that being said, there are a lot of users for Google and if the services that it owns. What really struck me as most remarkable, Julia, in this earnings report, YouTube ad revenues now hitting $6 billion in the quarter. That's up nearly 50% from a year ago. 
And YouTube now accounts for about 10% of Alphabet's total sales. Yeah, I read to a, in a recent Pew survey report that we've gone from seeing 73% of U.S. adults using uh, YouTube, the video platform, of course, in 2019, to 81% in, in 2022. These are astonishing numbers, and it's astonishing proud. It's no wonder that advertisers um, are following here. What are they saying yeah, on the earnings call? Oh, go on, Paul. You have more to say. Say it. <laughs> Just that kids also obviously using YouTube as well, definitely. 100%. Um, I was going to ask you, what are they saying about the return to work, at, at the hybrid environment going forward? What did we get on the earnings score? Because it's the outlook that is key on this as, um, as more vaccines yeah, proliferate definitely. and recovery yeah. takes place. Yeah. Yeah, the company said that it is still going to uh, allow for a hybrid model of working from home for some of its employees. But there have been multiple reports suggesting that Google and Alphabet are stepping up their efforts to let people return to the offices sooner rather than later because of people getting increasingly vaccinated. So you're going to see more people potentially returning to various Google uh, offices. And, you know, that I think is a trend that we're going to see throughout corporate America. As people get vaccinated, there will be a comfort level in allowing workers to come to the office again, provided that they're vaccinated. Provided that they're vaccinated. Um, what about taxes, Paul, while I've got you? Yeah, taxes is an interesting uh, point for Alphabet and many other big tech companies. There's been criticism of a lot of them for paying lower corporate taxes because they're domiciled in places like Delaware, the home of President Biden, as well as offshore places like Ireland. But Google has said, uh, you know, Ruth Peratt, the CFO of Alphabet, has said in recent interviews that she supports a higher corporate tax rate. And there's a trade group that's funded by Google, Facebook, Amazon, other big tech giants that have also said that they're willing to pay a higher tax rate. I mean, I think the, the, the general hope is that corporate taxes go up a bit, but not dramatically. And obviously, uh, you know, Senator Joe Manchin and some of the Republicans in the Senate will be you know, negotiating with President Biden on what that final number looks like. I guess it also helps if you've got um, a big geographical footprint as well, because that allows you to um, perhaps adjust where you pay taxes to. It's a different story if there's a global minimum tax. I don't suppose that was mentioned on the call. Definitely. And, and $55 billion in revenue uh, doesn't hurt either. Google clearly <laughs> has money to pay Uncle Sam and various aunts and uncles around the world as well. Yes. Paul DeMonica, thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Brazil's Senate has launched an investigation into the government's response to the pandemic. The move could reflect badly on President Jair Bolsonaro, who's expected to seek re-election next year. He's been accused of downplaying the threat of COVID-19, shunning masks and defying expert advice. The family of Lee Kung-hee, the late chairman of the Samsung Group, says it will pay nearly $11 billion in inheritance taxes that's reportedly more than three times what the Korean government took in estate tax for 2019. The family will also make multi-billion dollar donations to healthcare and give away Lee's vast collection of art and antiques. Lee was South Korea's richest man when he died last October from heart disease. Researchers have discovered a massive toxic waste site off the coast of Los Angeles. Footage from their expedition shows roughly 27,000 barrels dotting the ocean floor. Some of them are believed to contain harmful chemicals dating back to World War II. Scientists hope their research will help find a solution to the problem.
Okay, still to come here on First Move. Trading app Public says it offers a fairer share of the market spools than rival Robinhood. We're joined by one of its founders. And blockbuster results for big tech. Microsoft's president joins me to discuss a stellar quarter and more. Stay with us. It's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the U.S. majors are softer pre-market. Ahead of the Jay and Joe show in Washington, D.C., the high-powered wingmen of both fiscal and monetary stimulus both take center stage today. Jay Powell, ready to update on the Fed's monetary stimulus outlook. Meanwhile, President Biden also about to roll out fresh fiscal stimulus, his so-called American Families Plan, during the address before a joint session of Congress. Biden and Powell speak on the eve of what should be a very strong read on U.S. GDP, too, with Q1 growth expected to rise at an annual rate of over 6%. Consumer sentiment figures out yesterday also showed optimism at 14-month highs. So President Biden hoping to strike a unifying tone, too, similar to his inaugural address on Wednesday evening. The White House says Biden has a long list of accomplishments to be proud of. I can also tell you that uh, while the major policy announcement in the speech is, of course, the American Families Plan, a historic investment in education and child care, he will also use the speech as an opportunity to talk about many of his other priorities, including police reform, immigration, gun safety, his ongoing work to get the pandemic under control, and to putting Americans back to work. Uh, He was in the Senate for 36 years. He also sat through eight of these as the vice president, and he certainly recognizes the important opportunity that this offers. And Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, the American Family Plan, valued at $1.8 trillion, Not to be confused with the infrastructure plan at $2.2 trillion, not to be confused with the enacted COVID rescue plan, cost of $1.9 trillion. Hey, big spenders. Yeah, he's going to have to convince America that we need this, right? On top of all of the other rescue and relief and the way he'll he'll position this, Julia, is this is finally rewriting the rules to benefit working Americans again, to benefit Main Street, not just Wall Street, not just corporate profits. Uh, He's going to talk about how you can save money for people, maybe $13,000 a year for working families by letting their kids be in universal pre-K, three- and four-year-olds getting a quality education. And there are conservative economists and liberal economists who agree that a dollar spent before the age of five is a dollar well spent in terms Mm -hmm. of the economy and education. So we'll see how he crafts all of this, trying again to shift the balance back toward working families is how he's going to spend this. Yeah. And to your point, there are huge benefits that can be made and investment that should happen in the United States. It's sort of um, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in style, just without the massive majorities in Congress that he enjoyed. (laughs) Convincing the people's one thing, convincing Congress entirely another. You're absolutely right. And, you know, this is a guy who's been around. He knows the politics of this. So we'll see if he can play that well here. But we know there's approval rating, his most recent approval rating at 53 percent. And other other studies or or other surveys and polls that show that the majority of people agree with his infrastructure plan, for example, uh, that it could be some wind in his sails here, to use that uh, phrase um, that, that I often use. It will be fascinating to see whether the American public is ready for another big, you know, bold plan. But it's hard to 
to give people something and take it away. That that child tax credit hasn't even landed in bank accounts yet. That starts going out uh, in July. They want to make that permanent. That's part of this here. And they want rich people and companies to pay for these these new plans. Also, this is what I think is very interesting. The IRS, to say, has been, uh, you know, stretched to the limit is an understatement. The IRS is doing the stimulus checks. It's doing the child tax credit. It's doing all of these things that have been unveiled to help the American people. Uh, the White House is now saying they want to get more money to the IRS so that it can have more enforcement, so it can go after that low-hanging fruit of the billions and billions of dollars that rich people don't pay on their tax returns. So we'll see if we hear all of that tonight. Yes, I was going to say that's going to be a big piece of uh, the announcement tonight as well. Um, Christine, we will both be watching CNN's extensive coverage of President Biden's address to Congress, and we'll deal with the lack of sleep afterwards. And, of course, the Republican <laughs> response. Tune in tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern here in the United States, and that's 1 a.m. in London, 8 in Hong Kong. Christine, stay right there, because I want to get your take on this next story. And we're going from the Biden stimulus battle to the battle of the billionaires in space. Call it a schoolyard spat, perhaps, between two of the biggest grown-ups in tech, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, over an almost $3 billion contract to build a lunar lander. Now, NASA awarded the contract to Musk and SpaceX. Uh, Jeff Bezos's rocket company, Blue Origin, lost out. And it says the decision to choose SpaceX was flawed. Musk's response came in the form of a tweet back to uh, Jeff Bezos. And here it is. Can't get it up, in brackets, to orbit. Lol. Christine, I think if my mother's watching uh, at this moment, she just spat some of her tea out. What do we make of this? Blow the belt. It's, look, literally and figuratively, you know, it's so fascinating because Elon Musk just going out there and 100 percent Elon Musk, um, you read the statement from Blue Origin to the GAO uh, protesting the awarding of that contract. And it's very kind of bland and dry and technical. And then Elon Musk comes back and is with the schoolyard humor, locker, locker room humor, what you want. He also tweeted, by the way, a picture of the Blue Origin uh, lander uh, proposal that is uh, it's called the Blue Moon and scraped off the word moon and put balls below it. So really shows you where Elon Musk's mind is these days. <laughs> um, but it just kind of, I think, shows you these two billionaires who have a passion, the moonshot passion for getting back to the moon. Not unusual for the Bezos organization to c contest, you know, the awarding of this contract. What is unusual is the Elon Musk response there. And again, I think it's pretty much vintage Musk, don't you? I know. I was about to say, it's not unusual for, uh, for Elon Musk. And, and actually, there is a business story here beyond the sort of ongoing monkey business that we're, um, we're showing you on Twitter. And that is, um, and forgive my phraseology here, that, you know, NASA and the government are sort of putting all balls in one basket here, going yeah. for SpaceX and Elon Musk, because the belief was that they would give it to a couple of them just to diversify the risk here and make sure someone can achieve this in the time required. So yeah. I, I guess I understand some of the... the concern, perhaps, and the protest. And there's, and there's yeah. a third company from Alabama that's also protesting that this was given to SpaceX. And, and both uh, both SpaceX and or, uh, Blue Origin and this other company are both saying, look, we just don't think that they vetted the proposals deeply enough for how important this is and how few players there are here. So that was sort of the complaint of the Blue Origin folks. You saw the response um, right at Gutterball right there from Elon Musk. We may hear more from him. You know, he's going to be hosting Saturday Night Live this weekend. So we will have a uh, 
kind of a late night look at, at Elon Musk. Maybe there's going to be a skit about this. Maybe there's who knows what will be uh, coming forth. But we'll be hearing from and seeing Elon Musk very soon. We wait with bated breath. And uh, the moral of the story is it's not about the size. It's how well the rocket works. Christine Raymond said I might be fired for that. <laughs> We're just going to go <laughs> take a break. <laughs> Thank you for that. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. The trading day is about to begin on Wall Street, a crucial day for investors as we await Fed Chair Jay Powell's latest thoughts on stimulus and on interest rates. Boeing, meanwhile, pressuring the Dow. Its shares set to fall more than 1% after posting its sixth straight quarterly loss. The aerospace giant losing more than $500 million amid continued pandemic pressures. But it is projecting a return to profits soon. Okay, smartphone trading app Public.com burst onto the scene earlier this year when Michael Bolton literally sang its praises as he compared it to rival app Robinhood. I know you've been disappointed by your stock brokerage. You might be thinking, how can I ever trust again? Well, I know a thing or two about breakups, and I'm here to help. And so is Public.com. Public makes it easy for you to transfer your portfolio. Public.com calls itself a social investing app. It says its business model is less exploitative of retail investors than other apps and that it aims to democratize market access for first-time investors. And I'm pleased to say Life Abraham is the co-CEO of Public.com and he joins us now. Life, fantastic to have you on the show. Just explain that. What makes Public.com fairer than some of the alternatives out there? And great to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Julia. Um, so what public really is, is on the one side we're an investing app, on the other side we're also a social network. And so we've basically built a community around the stock market that um, is really centered around education and kind of, you know, learning from each other's experiences. And so, you know, so far we have about a million members on the app. And, um, and the main focus there is really the sense of, you know, uh, getting access to the stock market by truly, you know, learning from other people's experiences and kind of like see what other people invest in and so on. So it's about educating yourself by talking to other people or do you actually provide education in the form of, hey, if you're going to invest, you need some kind of stop loss. You need to be careful how you trade. Think about how much you're investing. Does that kind of education come with the platform, too? Yeah, so it's very heavily driven by the community itself, right? So on public, everyone has a portfolio. You can kind of see what other people invest in. You can see what kind of companies I own. And when I invest in the company, I can kind of write a little caption to it and kind of you know, share my thesis uh, behind why, why I'm making this investment, why I'm selling a certain stock and so on. And then there's also obviously, you know, other kind of kind of thought leaders on the app that kind of share their experiences um, around investing and kind of like their principles around it. And so, you know, for example, one thing we, we often see is, you know, people join the app and they were kind of really going from being super new to the stock market to kind of dollar cost averaging into a, um, um, into a diversified portfolio within a month or so. And they really learn these types of, you know, strategies uh, uh, really through the community and other people on the app. And I know you're also holding town halls as well with the CEOs of some of these companies to allow retail investors access to the actual CEOs of companies that they're potentially going to invest in, which I know is some other way that you're trying to democratize access to information. It's far easier perhaps to do that than it is to jump on an earnings call and ask a CEO a question in front of analysts and, and big investors. 
Yeah, exactly. So we've really seen, obviously, you know, trading volume has been, you know, going up in terms of retail volume. I think the last number I saw was like 25% of trading volume is really retail volume in the US now already. And, you know, I think companies are seeing that retail investors are just having a larger and larger impact, you know, um, uh, also, you know, on the space in general. Um, but as a retail investor, I think you haven't really seen many companies, you know, let retail investors ask questions and earning calls and so on. And so that really has been a thing mostly for, you know, bankers and analysts. And, you know, most people have kind of been locked out of that. And so with town halls, you really just opening that up to more people and really creating this like direct connection between the, between the people who run the companies and, you know, the people who are investing into them. And so the first ones are going to happen now. I think today, uh, Shai Winninger, who's the co-founder of Lemonade, is going to do the first town hall. And uh, the next one shortly after that is going to be uh, Whitney Wolf Hurt, who is the you know, CEO and co-founder, CEO and founder of uh, uh, Bumble. I think one of the big differences, and we should talk about this, because you came to my attention when the whole world seemed to be talking about the GameStop saga and the challenges that Robinhood faced, particularly at, at that moment, was the use of allowing the flat platform to be free, but funding yourselves via something called payment for order flow, where you take all the orders from from the people that use the platform, you give them off to a market maker, in this case, obviously, in, in the GameStop case and, and Robinhood, it was Citadel, and then they provide money for doing that. You decided we're not using payment for order flow anymore. How are you bringing money in as a result? And, and has it hurt your bottom line? Yeah, so... Um I think in the industry, you've seen all stock brokerages kind of go into the zero commission model. And, you know, Robert obviously, you know, pioneered that and, you know, kudos to them for, 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 for doing so. But on the back, this has really been funded by this model of payment for order flow. And what we believe is that payment for order flow also just kind of creates a little bit of like misaligned incentives for the brokerages itself. Because at the end of the day, if you make money on payment for order flow, you have interest in, you know, uh, in having people trade more. Um, and therefore, you know, offering them products like, for example, margin, which is, you know, basically a fancy word for loaning money to trade with. And so we believe if, you know, um, because, you know, again, like 90 like, uh, percent um, of, of people on public are first time investors. So they make their first investment on public. And so we have a certain responsibility to make sure that these people are not being burned in their first experience. And, you know, payment for order flow kind of incentivizes to, you know, sell these people, for example, you know, margin or options trades and so on. And so we made the decision to get rid of the kind of PFOF rails and, you know, don't participate in that anymore and instead introduce this tipping model. And this tipping model really, you know, gives people the option to pay us for the execution of that trade. And what we believe is kind of the beautiful thing here is that it very much aligns our incentives with the incentives of our users because we have a very clear incentive to just build the best product for them because, you know, if we do well, they will tip us. If we screw up, they will likely not tip us as much. And, um, uh, and because of this kind of, you know, nice incentive balance, uh, we really have, you know, uh, um, like, like our goal is really to just build the best product for them versus for market makers. Are you making more money now or before? We're not sharing numbers on it yet, but, uh, you know, so far it's going to Because you have to stay in business too. Very quickly, <laughs> what, about, what about, I know you don't have margin trading, you don't allow derivatives either. What about crypto? Is that something that people are going to be able to access on the platform going forward? Yeah, I think crypto is coming for sure. Um, obviously, you know, I think nowadays, you know, crypto is just a piece of a modern portfolio in a way. And so I think, you know, um, uh, and so I think it's just something that a lot of our users are obviously asking for. And so that's definitely going to come throughout the year. How long do we have to wait? Um, a little bit longer, but it will be soon. <laughs> <laughs> 
great to have you with us. Keep in touch, please. And we'll let track progress, the co-founder and co-CEO of Public there. Great to have you on. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, Microsoft's bold commitment to help close the disability divide, plus its massive quarterly results. Microsoft President Brad Smith will join us to discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move to Microsoft's Momentum, the company of quarterly results topping expectations with profits jumping nearly 45% from a year ago. Revenue also soaring almost 20% with the cloud business booming. The stock at this moment in early trade down just over 2.5%, just for context, up 55% in the last 12 months. Joining us now, Microsoft President Brad Smith. Brad, always fantastic to have you on the show and congrats on a great quarter to you and the team across the board. I have to say one of the things that caught my ear on the earnings call, and it was uh, Sachin Adela, he said, over a year into the pandemic, digital adoption curves aren't slowing down, they're accelerating. And it's just the beginning. Just talk us through it. What are you seeing? What are clients doing at this moment? Uh, well, thanks, Julia. And as always, it's great to be with you. And, you know, we are seeing digital technology continue to accelerate. And it's interesting when you look around the world, um, we're seeing this both in the countries that are obviously still suffering from the pandemic uh, as people continue in many instances to, to work or shop from home. Uh, but we're also seeing digital technology accelerate in countries that are more back to work, say uh, New Zealand or certain countries in Southeast Asia or Australia or China. And I think what that really speaks to is the decade ahead and uh, how this is really a phenomenon for us from the cloud to productivity services to gaming to something like LinkedIn and learning uh, that people have you know, learned more about in the pandemic and in many ways, they'll continue to use in their daily lives and certainly in the workplace uh, as the pandemic eventually subsides. You know, it explains why you're so positive on the, on the future and the outlook for, for cloud growth. You're clearly on the acquisition hunt. And we saw that with the latest acquisition nuance, of course, in the healthcare and, and AI space. Um, but you also mentioned there the huge challenges and it's, it's global. It's uneven. The recovery clearly is uneven. Just give us a window into the boardroom, if you can. Just how do you invest in this kind of environment? How do you make decisions in this kind of environment? Well, really, at Microsoft, uh, the question for every major investment is always about the year 2030. Um, you know, it's great to, to have the kind of quarter we did with the strong growth really across the board. Um, but it's ultimately about the long term. Uh, the long term ultimately arrives. That's one thing that we've learned in our 45 year history. Uh, and when we look at the long term, you know, what we really see is ultimately the opportunity to use technology and data uh, to you know, spread opportunities for economic growth more broadly around the world. Um, that really requires for us more capital investments, building more data centers around the world. You know, these are, as you know, you know, typically investments that cost hundreds of millions of dollars or more. And, and then as we did with the acquisition of Nuance Communications, it's identifying the parts of the economy where AI can really bring about substantial improvement. 
In that instance, it's something like you know, transcription you know, for people who are engaged in the healthcare space uh, so that AI can capture their words, it can record them, uh, it can help them be more effective. And obviously, look around the world right now, um, we need to maximize the value and contribution of each and every healthcare worker. This is a great example of what something like AI can do. Yeah, you know, it all links to another huge announcement that you made today. And I do want to focus in on that because I think it's incredibly important and it it hones in on what you call. And I think it's a great way to put it a huge untapped talent pool in the world. And it's those that are in some way disabled. And you're making huge steps, particularly over the next five years, to try and narrow what you call the disability divide. Talk me through the announcement today. Sure, it really is important, and I think it's an opportunity for all of us to just reflect a little bit more on the fact that more than a billion people around the world, uh, at some point in their life, either temporarily or permanently, will have some kind of disability. It, 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 It might be relating to hearing or sight or other things. And when we look at the world today, um, you know, there's such enormous talent in this community, but only 33% of people with disabilities are currently employed. That compares with 76% of their peers. So that is really an enormous divide. And our view is that digital technology can help close this gap. Uh, It can empower people with disabilities to be more productive. And especially if we can build on that to really help bring people into the workforce, to give them the digital skills that will help them get a job, that will help employers better identify this talent, and then make the workplace itself more inclusive of people with disabilities um, at a time when in some countries we're looking at a prospective labor shortage. This is great talent that can help the economy continue to move forward. I was looking at some of these statistics on this as well. I mean, even just in the United States alone, one in four people with some form of disability live in poverty. It's worse if you're a minority. So there's many aspects to this that you're tackling. If you if you just try and tackle one, make it actionable, Brad, for us. Just be specific about what you're doing here, because some of it's about providing care workers with digital skills so that they can support those that they're um, supporting and helping your partnering with universities as well, because it's it's not just about the workplace, it's about the education before you even get there. And even with a college degree, you're still less likely to be hired. So there's so many aspects here that you are tackling in, in trying to, to help with this. Well, I think you said it very well. And in some ways, to bring people into the workforce, it does start uh, with the education system. That's why we're working with more universities uh, to really make classrooms starting in K-12 and into higher education more accessible, to easier for people with disabilities to navigate. Um, but then a lot of it does also depend on digital tools. Uh, imagine trying to do our jobs today without the ability to you know, use a computer effectively for all of the things on which we rely. Um, we are building more and more technology into our devices and our services to do that. Uh, Things that will make it easier for the blind community or the vision impaired community generally to to take advantage of of technology, immersive uh, screen readers and the like, captioning for the deaf community. Um, But when you look at something like the, the home care givers, we want to train them so that when they're in homes with people with disabilities, they're in a position to help this community learn how to use these tools. And we want to provide more 
tools for software developers. So when they're creating their software, they're really doing it with this uh, philosophy of accessibility by design at the very start. So we're focused in, as we always do, by starting with our own products. But this is a movement. It's a movement that has been gaining traction, but it's a movement that can spread much more rapidly over the next five years. And, and I think in doing so, you know, just really change, transform, if you will, uh, the kinds of opportunities for people with disabilities. Yeah, and particularly post-COVID as well, with a significant number of people suffering with COVID after effects as well. We need to be very aware of this. Um, the time is nigh. Brad, um, I want to just get your take on something else that I think is vitally important, and that's voting rights here in the United States. I know you're making big investments in Georgia as well, and I, I just wanted to get Microsoft's current view and stance on the Election Integrity Act there. Well, it is an important issue in the United States. Yeah, I think to a large degree, uh, you know, the health of our business, even to some degree our, our existence as a business, you know, depends on, you know, living and working and in the U.S. being headquartered in a country that needs to have a healthy democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for us that means three things. Uh, it means that voting needs to be easy. It ne- means that elections need to be secure. Uh, it means that the electorate deserves to be well-informed. And it's always a challenge when companies have to take on these issues but I don't think we can look the other way. And at the same time, I think we really need to be principled and bipartisan in our approach. Uh, so that's what we're seeking to do. That's what we did in a place like Georgia, where we're adding jobs at a very rapid rate. Um, that's why we're speaking out in Texas, where we also employ a large number of people. Uh, I don't think it's an issue that's going to go away. No. And, and Brad, I have about 20 seconds, but I also just wanted to get your take on India, because I know it's obviously very close to, to Satya's heart being uh, an Indian-born CEO of an American company. You're also well, I would providing say the problem is huge. Yeah. It's an enormously important humanitarian problem. The business community is marshalling resources. Microsoft is among them to donate supplies and help to India. We really wholeheartedly applaud the quick action of the U.S. government over the past weekend to pivot. There is no substitute for U.S. assistance and leadership and you know, to provide more access to vaccines, oxygen, and other related supplies. Uh, I think that's a huge step forward. India has always stood ready to help the United States. The United States equally needs to help India. Brad, it's always great to have you on. Thank you. Brad Smith, Thank president you. of Microsoft. Great to chat, as always. More first move after the break. Stay with us. One of the key aspects of smart cities in the future will be their renewable energy. And while solar looks likely to dominate the future of urban energy generation, one company thinks there's a gap in the market for kinetic technology. And it's as simple as putting one foot in front of the other. PaveGen's energy tiles have already been installed in over 200 projects across 36 different countries. And CEO Lawrence Campbell-Cook met me at one of their newest installations in the UK. Tell me how your PaveGen tiles work. So how the system works is underneath the triangle is a rotary flywheel. So when you stand on it, it spins the flywheel for up to around 10 seconds per step. And the more you walk on it, the more it spins, and it gives a continuous flow of power as someone walks down a street. 
Each step generates between 2 and 5 watts of energy, depending on weight, so the heavier the foot or wheel, the more energy produced. On a small track like this, it's enough to charge a phone or provide lighting for these benches. But with bigger networks and constant commuter footfall, PaveGen sees bigger possibilities. We see applications for PaveGen in, in street lighting, pollution sensing, off-grid power networks, maybe even in the future feeding it back to the grid. So we're expanding into key markets. So it's outside the White House in the area called Two Point Circle in Washington, DC. We've got running tracks in Hong Kong on the fourth story of a building. And as you run around the track, it uses the energy to power lights in the building itself. We believe we can reshape how cities look in the future. En masse outside every single office, every train station, every retail environment, and maybe even on every single road for vehicles to use. So we want to take it everywhere, and then also to communities that can really benefit from it. So in the developing world, there's many applications where the energy produced can be incredibly valuable. A commodity conundrum, Africa, one of the biggest commodity producers in the world, but those producers don't often see enough of the financial benefits. In today's Connecting Africa, Eleni Jokos explores untapped potential. A 2019 McKinsey report estimated that sub-Saharan Africa would need eight times more fertilizer, six times more improved seed, at least $8 billion of investment in storage like silos and warehouses, and as much as $65 billion in irrigation to fulfill its agricultural potential. Now we need to get to the stage where to say, let's realize the potential. And I think for me, it goes back to say, what is it that you need to actually be able to be a successful farmer? You need some bit of certainty in the piece of land that you are in. You need money to flow in. Money will only flow in if there is certainty. That goes back to governments to say you have a responsibility for allocating land rights for a number of countries, formalizing the land governance. As soon as that is done, the financial institutions, either locally or globally, will see a potential there and be able to invest in those things. Leading agricultural economist Wandile Sichlobo makes regular visits to farmers like Gift Mafuleka, who is targeting soybeans as a potentially game-changing crop. There is a demand for the crop. South Africa has well over 2 million tons processing capacity for soya beans and we're still producing in the region of 1.5, 1.7 million tons of soya beans. Do you have plans to export to other African countries? Most definitely. If more countries would be able to open up borders for various commodities and, and limit restrictions in terms of uh, genetics of, of commodities, then I, I think we can be able to, um, to feed ourselves. Sikhloba believes the African continental free trade area could particularly benefit the agri-tech sector. I mean, on the biotechnology side, if you think about South Africa, which, for example, is using genetically modified seeds on maize, the yields per hectare for maize on average, they're roughly around about six tons per hectare. But in countries that have adopted that technology in the same continent, neighboring Zimbabwe, you see that the yields are around about one tons per hectare or even less than that. That already tells you then that if technologies could be accepted in the other countries, there's a lot of improvement that in, in a hectare that farmers could pretty much gain. And then that produce that comes out of that is where we could add value, is what we could trade, is where incomes could come from. Thank you for watching First Move. Stay safe, connect the world with Becky Anderson is next.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.